James chapter number four, verse number one declares, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Or do you suppose uh, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, be wretched and, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into, uh, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the, the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, just for a few moments, I want to share from the subject title, uh, The Appropriate Time to Fight. The Appropriate Time to Fight. Let me pray for us. Lord, it is always uh, so good uh, to be able to uh, dig into your word. God, I thank you for this week's preparation, and I thank you for this week's uh, time of study. Um, God, I pray that you would use as much or as little of that as you desire to in this time. God, I thank you that you never miss an opportunity to speak to us. Um, God, you are speaking because your word is living. God, but help us, God, to not be caught up in the distractions of the day. Um, certainly many of our thoughts are based upon what happened last night, and others are thinking about what will happen later on today, God, but help us to focus on your word. God, help us to not miss an opportunity to hear from you. God, I thank you that your word allows us to hear from you, God, but your word allows us to be transformed to be more like Christ. God, help us to not just get through the message, God. God, but help us to dig in and lock in. God, help us to hear from you. And God, help us to be transformed by what you have to say to us. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the older I get or the older we get, the more we tend to recognize that there are some personal family traditions that are probably not the most healthy traditions. Uh, I grew up in a household with uh, two siblings, and when it came to fighting, there were two family commandments. Uh, number one, if one of the settlers was fighting, all of the settlers were fighting. It didn't matter if we were fighting on the playground or if we were fighting in the neighborhood. There were no fair fight with the settles. <laughs> just, just how we roll. We were committed to making sure that we fought together. The second commandment was on the opposite side. The second commandment said that though we were willing to fight others, we were not able or we were not ever to fight one another. 
we were never to put our hands on one another. I remember my mom telling me that she worked too hard for us to be fighting. She would call us together, she would look us in the eye, and she would say to us, y'all better figure out how to work out your disagreements because I have done too much for you for you guys to be fighting. She would tell me, since I gave birth to you, that means that you're brothers, that you are brothers and sisters, and that means you are part of the same family. When I think about what my mom would tell our family about not fighting with our siblings, it is a reminder that since we have become a part of God's family, there should never be a war among us. Yes, there are going to be disagreements. Yes, there are going to be some tough conversations. But since we've been bought and since we've been purchased by the sacrifice of Christ, that means that we are a part of God's family. Our identity is not in our last name, not in our race, not in our gender, not in our socioeconomics. Our, our identity is first found in Christ, which means that we are now a part of God's family. As your pastor, uh, it is my, it's my specific prayer that we would not be a church that is, that is a group of people who are fighting amongst each other, but it's my prayer that we will be a church that is willing to fight for one another. May we be a church known for encouraging one another. May we be a church that is committed to praying for one another and serving one another, not simply uh, by fighting uh, with each other, but fighting for one another. I love our passage this morning because essentially that is what James is communicating to us in the text. James is specifically speaking to us to remind us that we should be in a position, in a place in our lives where we are not experiencing wars within the body of Christ. When you look at the text, the, the, the passage is specifically uh, addressing a group of Christians. This is not to the worldly people. This is, well, this is not to uh, unbelievers. This is not to people who are unregenerate or unborn again. This passage is specifically speaking to people who have been born from above, who have an eternal relationship with Christ. And the passage is telling us that you and I should never have a time in our life where we are having wars in the midst of the body. When you look at the text, when you see what James has already told us, it all fits together. James has already spoken about a living faith is an active faith. A living faith is a faith uh, that, is, that is shown in the works that we do. No, our works do not save us, but our works show that our that but our works show the genuineness of our faith. Uh, James has already spoken about how also our words reveal our maturity. James will tell us that, that what you say reveals how mature you really are. James has also spoken about how uh, godly uh, wisdom fuels our faith. Uh, there's a wisdom from this world, but there's also a wisdom from above. And those who have wisdom from above, the scripture says those folks are wise. And now James is speaking about how an issue can divide the family of faith. This is really important because it's so easy for us to be divided. Like one of the, one of the pictures of heaven a heaven is a place where we will all be together. We will all be on one accord. We will all be focused on the same thing. So Satan's greatest uh, weapon against us, one of Satan's uh, most effective schemes, is to divide us here on the earth. That's why there's so much division in our world. That's why there's so much chaos. That's why it's so much easier to pick out what separates us because Satan desires to separate us, but God desires that we be together. So James addresses an issue 
that is present during the time where the passage is being written, but he's also addressing an issue that is, that is apparent, and it is an issue that has the potential to divide our body today, and that is the issue of having a war among the members. When you look at the text from verses 1 through 12, there are really three uh, wars that, that James specifically addresses, and the first war that James addresses is the war against self. Verse uh, 1 says once again, this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's your passions at war within you that cause wars outside of you. It has been said that, that wars in the heart will always lead to wars in the church. I'm going to add to that statement and say wars in the heart will always, re- will always lead to wars in the home and wars in the marriage and wars in the community, wars in your job, wars in every aspect of your life. We, w- we would do well to remember that the essence of any sin is selfishness. Anytime you and I sin, essentially we are simply being selfish. If you go back all the way to Genesis 3, the first sin, Eve disobeyed God because she wanted to eat of the tree and become wise. She was being selfish. In Genesis 12, Abraham was being selfish when he lied about his wife because he was trying to protect his wife, protect his life. And in Joshua chapter number 7, when Achan sins, when he steals the devoted things, when he lies and he's disobedient to God, ultimately he's being selfish. It's true for the people who lived in Scripture, but it's also true for us today. When we sin, ultimately we are being selfish. When we're being selfish, we're saying, God, I want my way more so than your way. When we're we're willing to sin, we're being rebellious to God. I know it's not popular to talk about sin. I know that people want to skip over the idea of sin. But here's the truth. You and I deal with sin, not just daily, but moment by moment, because we are still in the flesh. When you look at the text... When you look at the selfishness that is present with sin, we got to understand that each and every decision that we make is really a, a sinful or selfish decision or has the potential. When you know, when you know for sure that you need to cut that TV off so you can open up that Bible, you're being selfish. When you know the Lord has called you to invest in someone, but you're just unwilling to spend the time, you're being selfish. When you know that God is calling you to do something, but you say, what I want to do is more important than what God is calling me to do, essentially, you are being selfish. When I think about, even in our marriage, my wife is here. When I think about the issues that we face in marriage, it really boils down to, to, to selfishness. I'll, I'll, I'll own it, that me being selfish. Me wanting my way over her wanting her way. Me considering what's best for me versus considering what's best for her. Me considering what's best for me versus considering what's best for my children. It it goes back to we have this issue with being selfish. Now, some of us can can probably hear what I'm saying and probably think, T. Settles, I ain't got time for all that. I ain't got time to be investing in people. I'm just here at church, bro. It's been a hard week. I'm, I'm depressed about what happened last night. Bro, I need you to tell me something encouraging. 
Like I need you to tell, speak a word. Here's the word I got for you today, right? Stop being selfish, okay? It's the word I got for you. When, you. when you go back and you read the scriptures, some of the biggest pain, some of the biggest issues come when people are willing to be selfish, when people allow selfishness to drive their decisions. Uh, this week, I want to encourage you to go back and read Numbers chapter number 12. Uh, in it, you have a passage um, where people are what I consider trying to be super spiritual uh, to mask their selfishness, but really, they were living in sin. In Numbers 12, it's a passage where Miriam and Aaron, they complain about Moses' wife, but really, they were upset about Moses' authority, right? They, 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 they put some, some spiritualese on top of it. They, they, they put some, a, a warm uh, phrase on top of it, but essentially, uh, they, were, they were being selfish. In, Ma- in Mark chapter number 10, when James and John, uh, they go to Jesus and they try to have a spiritual moment to say, Lord, when you establish your kingdom, we want to sit at your right hand, we want to sit at your left hand, as if they wanted to serve. No, they wanted a position of power and influence. It's easy for us even today to put and slap some, some, uh, some good Christian language on top of something to mask the fact that we are ultimately being selfish and self-centered. When we think about our passage and what it's communicating, really, it's a, it is a reminder of the issue of worldliness, okay? It's easy for worldliness to creep inside the church because worldliness is independence from God. I want to say it this way. Worldliness must be understood as the convenient use of God without coming under the authority of God. I want to say it again. When you're being worldly, you are you are conveniently slapping God's name on things without coming under the authority of God's name. It's, it's the musician who has the vulgar song. I, I'm going to spare y'all some lyrics. I thought about giving some lyrics this morning, but I'm not going to do it. But it's the musician who has the extremely vulgar song, and they get the Grammy, and they go to stage and say, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Come on, bro. God is not in that. Like, worldliness allows me to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Worldliness, worldliness allows me um, to, to have a comfortable, convenient, and casual kind of lifestyle. And if we're not careful, you and I, I being the most important one because I'm speaking to myself, you and I need to be careful because if we are not careful, you and I can be guilty of living a worldly and conflict-driven life. So I was praying about the passage and studying, thinking about just couples that fight constantly are really couples that are worldly. Churches that fight constantly, that fight over things that have no eternal value are churches that are worldly. Friends who fight over things that don't matter are friends that are worldly. And we've got to take the time to identify, to pause, and to reflect and identify that the source of the conflict in many of our relationships, in our marriages, on our jobs, the source of those conflicts is really a deeper conflict that's going on in our heart. A lot of the conflicts that we see 
are just the fruit, but not the root. And if you don't address the root, you will continue to have the fruit. The conflict is not the issue. The conflict is the symptom of a greater issue that's going on in our hearts. Like, our jobs as, as Christians is not to bring the world into the church. Our responsibility as believers is to take the church to the world. And it's unfortunate that when we look at Christianity, we look at the gospel movements, we see more of the world influencing the church than the church having an impact and influence on the world. If we deal with this, we've got to be, we've got to be honest. I know, this name, I know that's not what you want to hear today, but we've got to be honest that, that when I have issues and conflict in my life, it's not just a struggle. It's not just, uh, it's not just a habit. Like, if I have an issue with anger, like, I, I can easily excuse and say, you know what, I just got an anger issue. No, no, no. The anger issue has me, right? You know, it's, it's not that I, I got a, you know, I got a problem with cussing. I just let a few words slip every now and again. But no, 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 no. The, the, the cursing problem has you, right? It's not that, that, you know, I just log on to some things every now and again. It's, it's not that I have an issue with my computer. The computer has me. And until we recognize the source and the root of the issues, then we will never be able to move past the issues. Verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. Uh, it, is, it has been said, well, that, that the purpose of prayer, once again, is not to get a man's will done in heaven. It is to get God's will done on the earth. But to get God's will done on the earth, I've got to ask God to answer prayers based upon his will being done. Some of us have struggles with, why does God not answer my prayer? Why does God, why, why is it every time that I pray, I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling? And, and it is true that there, there are countless examples of believers who fervently pray and never get the answer that they, that they desire. I, I want to make room for that, but I also want to make room for us to realize that sometimes when we pray, we don't get the answer specifically because we're asking for something that is selfish and self-centered and unhonoring to God. One of, the, one of the most effective ways that we can pray is to pray specifically in a way where God unquestionably gets the glory. When I pray that the Lord is pleased, when I pray that God's glory is seen, those are the prayers that God answers. But when I pray, Lord, you know, let me win the game. Lord, let me, um, let me, let me get the promotion. Lord, let me get the car. Lord, let me get the house. Lord, let me uh, get the nice vacation. Those are things, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if that's all I'm praying for, ultimately, uh, the only person who gets glory is me, and that's why God does not answer those kind of prayers. So when we look at it, first, James addresses a war with self, but secondly, James addresses a war with the Savior. Verse 4 says, you adulterous people, you do not know, uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy with God. Like hearing, hearing the wording of the point makes, 
may, it may catch you off guard. You may be thinking, now, come on, pastor. This is it's a little extreme to, to be at war with God. It's a little extreme to think that God has enemies. It's a little extreme to think that, like, we're in some kind of battle spiritually. But that's exactly what the pastor is communicating. When you look at the text, some may be thinking, no, God is love. Like, God does not have any enemies, but the text gives us three specific enemies that God addresses. And James names these three enemies that should be our enemies because God desires for us to not be at at war with him, but God expects us to be at peace with him. In verse 4, James mentions the world. The world is understood as the society or the human system that operates independent from God. Uh, The world is an enemy of God. The world system is a mindset that encourages you to live your life independent from the Lord. Uh, I can remember back in 1999 when I was a freshman at Morehouse College. It was a great uh, transition. I was no longer in my mom's house. That meant I could do what I wanted to do. That meant I could go and come as I pleased. That meant I could have my friends over when I wanted to, right? I I was free to live based upon my own rules and my own authority. And essentially, that's essentially what we want today as Christians. We, We want to not go to hell, right? Nobody wants to burn for eternity. But on the other side, I want my best life now. I want to live my life in such a way where I get to do what I want to do. I want to get to live my life based upon my own freedom, my own comfort, and what makes me feel good. When you think about what what the world encourages us, the world encourages you, do your own thing, experience things, live life, don't have any regrets. But the gospel tells us something completely different. The gospel reminds me that that I have an identity in Christ, that, that God created me in his image. God created me to fulfill his purpose. The gospel reminds me that no matter where I go and what I do, my greatest accountability is not my parents or even my church members. The greatest accountability that is in my life is not my spouse, my coach, or my boss. The greatest accountability that I have is God. And since God is always present, I'm always accountable to the Lord because ultimately I want to please God more than I want to please people. When you look at the text, it is, it, is a, it is a really, really hard passage to swallow because essentially the passage is, is comparing friendship with the world with adultery. I know that puts us in a, in a different mindset, but when you read Romans 7, 4, it's a reminder that when you become a believer, you belong to Christ. It speaks of a covenantal relationship. It communicates a relationship that needs fidelity. It speaks about a relationship that requires complete steadfastness in the relationship. Uh, when the original Jewish audience had a heard, would have heard this passage, they immediately would have thought back to the prophets Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Hosea because they, they continually spoke against uh, the nation of Israel because of the sin of idolatry. By adopting, uh, they would adopt sinful ways, and they would worship other gods, and they would, be, they would have to be called back to repentance and faith because their hearts were easily turned away from the Lord. Same is true with us. 
It is so easy for our hearts to be turned away from the things of God. It's so easy for us to be so, so close to the things of this world. So first we have the, the, the world is the enemy, but secondly we have the flesh. When the text of, uh, addresses the flesh, it is meant to address the old nature we inherited from Adam. That sinful nature that causes us to sin. I think it's important for us to realize that, that the flesh is not the body. The body itself is not sinful. The body is neutral. The spirit can use my body to glorify God. The flesh can use my body to serve Satan. Uh, the, the issue is that there is a war going on between the flesh and the spirit. That's why Galatians 5 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Living the life of faith requires that we do battle with the flesh. Living a life that pleases God requires that you put to death sin in your life. So first we have the world, then we have flesh, the flesh. But then second, thirdly, uh, the passage addresses the devil. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God and resist the devil. The word... Uh, the world is in conflict with the Father. The flesh is in conflict with the Spirit. And the devil opposes the Son of God. When we think about this battle, we've got to remember that Satan uh, many times will use the problem of pride as one of his greatest tools against us. Because pride is a significant issue because pride encourages us to rob God of his glory. Preacher said it this way, said uh, that pride is like a woodpecker uh, pecking on a tree. Then lightning hits the tree and knocks the tree down. And then the woodpecker responding, hey, everybody, look what I did. Pride is taking credit for what God has accomplished. That's why pride is such a significant issue in your life. Anytime you live in such a way where you are willing to take God's credit that is, a, that is a position of danger spiritually in your life. When you look at the text, we've got to remember that God gives humility, that God has called us to live a life of humility. So oftentimes, uh, we get caught up in desiring the stuff from God uh, rather than desiring an authentic relationship with God. It's easy for us to operate in such a way where we are taking God's credit because really we just want stuff. I um, heard it this week said it this way that, that many Christians op operate like a bride that is more thankful for the ring than they are the groom who gives the ring. Like some of us can be so committed to getting the stuff that we miss out on the one who gives the stuff. We need humility because it is an opportunity for us to not forget about who God is and what God has accomplished. And there's a story told of two brothers who ended up uh, taking different paths after they graduated from high school. Uh, one brother wanted to work in the, on the family farm, and the other brother wanted to get away from the farm, so he went away to college. The brother who went away to college ended up uh, majoring in finance, and he got a great job working on Wall Street. 
after working on Wall Street for a couple of years, he made a ton of money, and the Wall Street brother returned home. When he saw his brother, he said to him, I can't believe you are still working here in the field. Don't you know that you could have made something out of your life? Don't you know you could have left here and got a degree? You could have clients. You could have traveled the world. You could have made something of yourself, but you chose to stay home. The brother who stayed home to work on the, on the farm responded, Brother, I know it's been a long time since you've been a home, but I want you to look out at the field. He said, specifically, I want you to look out at the wheat field. He said, do you see the wheat stalks that are standing up? Uh, they are standing up proud because they're empty. He says, look at the wheat stalks that are bent over. He says, those are the ones that are full, and those are the ones that are most valuable. As a Christian, when we bend, when we're humble, what we're doing is we are, we are revealing that we are in right relationship with God. Uh, anybody who has worked out, um, who's done squats, um, you, you can remember that, that the lower you go, the stronger you get. Like, like at Georgia, when you're squatting, if you don't go low enough, it doesn't count. And in, in the Christian life, if we're not willing to go low, we're not willing to humble ourselves. We're not willing to put ourselves in a position for, for God to be exalted and for us to be humbled. We are living a life of pride. That's why God wants us to be humble. And Satan wants us to be proud. God wants us to depend upon him. Satan wants us to depend upon ourselves. And in the text, the passage is telling us there are three enemies we've got to face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But Christ has delivered us from all of those things. Now, I'm sure that there's somebody here thinking, a dog, pastor? What does this mean? Like, am I just supposed to come to church and just have my quiet time and just like sing kumbaya with my Christian friends? Like, how am I supposed to live this life? Like, how am I supposed to practically apply what you're saying? Preacher, does this mean that I need to stay at home? And just be a hermit and just like pray for the return of Christ. Like I'm just going to stay home and just, just tarry in the spirit until Jesus comes back. I'm not saying that. If you are thinking that this morning, I want to help you out. This afternoon or when you leave church today, can you hang out with your friends? Absolutely. But if you're a Christian, you shouldn't hang out with your friends without Jesus. Can you go to the movies tonight? And enjoy a movie? Absolutely. Just don't go to a movie where you can't invite Jesus. Can you have a relationship? Can you date someone? Absolutely. You can be in a relationship or a marriage. Absolutely. You can do that. Just don't have a relationship without Jesus. Can you have a career and a profession and make money and take care of your family? Absolutely. You can. Just don't do it without Jesus. And when we think about not doing things, not, not living a life without Jesus, it points us back to the fact that our identity is found in Jesus. So first, we have wars against ourselves. Secondly, we have wars against our Savior. But thirdly, there is a war against Satan. Verse 7 again says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched 
and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When you read verse 7, we are challenged not to fight among ourselves or with our Savior. We are challenged to war against Satan. Whenever we consider the issue of spiritual warfare, we must always be mindful that when we are in a spiritual battle, we need to use spiritual weapons. How you fight physically is totally different than how you fight spiritually. Like a lot of times we are crippled in our, in our, in our spiritual life because we want to try to take worldly methods of getting things done when God says there must be a spiritual commitment to fighting. Like you and I, I know this is getting into the spooky, crazy, but you and I are citizens of heaven. We are placed here on this earth, and ultimately, I got to understand that I have a king who has made me a part of his kingdom, and for me to have success in God's kingdom, I got to fight God's way. There, there are certain things, amen, there are certain things that we cannot do based upon our degrees or our finances or our relationships. I am an educated networker. I know a lot of people. But here's the truth. There's some, there's some calls that I cannot make to people. i got to make that call to God. There's some fights that, though I'm strong, that I cannot win. i got to allow God to fight the battles for me. And the more we see that we got to fight God's way, the more we will have success in the fight that we have to face. Spiritual weapon that he tells us is, number one, we've got to submit to God. Submission is a military term. It means to get into proper rank and order. It is an unconditional surrender that leads to complete victory. If there's any area of your life that is kept back from God, there will always be a battle in that specific area. Also, we are called not just to submit to God, we are called to draw near to God. We draw near to God by confessing our sins and we are cleansed. Anytime you confess your sins, the scripture uh, for confession is homo galeo. It is homo means the same galeo or words. When we confess our sins, we are in agreement with God about our sins being wrong. When we get into agreement with God, the scriptures tell us that we can be forgiven. We are to draw near to God, but we are also to humble ourselves. We are to humble ourselves so that God can exalt us. I'll close with this, and Chris, you can come on up. A couple, couple years ago, I was um, preparing a, a chapel, and I was trying to figure out, you know, how do you communicate greatness, right? Everybody, I don't think that I've ever met a person who, would say that they don't have a desire to be great, right? Like nobody lives their life saying, I want to be average, I want to be mediocre, um, I don't want to do anything great. And the reality of it is, we have in our culture concluded that greatness is defined uh, by, by what you acquire or what you accomplish, right? Like if you acquire a lot of money, you're great. If you accomplish a lot of things, the scriptures, the, the, the world says you're great. But how God measures greatness and the world measures greatness are totally different. When God measures greatness, it's not about how many people serve you. It's about how many people you serve. 
In Matthew 23, 11, it simply says that the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's easy for us to think that if I want to be great, I got to go to UGA and get a specific degree. I got to leave UGA and get a specific job. Once I get the specific job, I got to marry a specific spouse. And I got to have a specific car, live in a specific neighborhood, have a specific number of kids. And that is just a lie. Like, what we got to understand is when Jesus looks at greatness or when he considers the criteria for greatness, has nothing to do with your degrees, has nothing to do with where you work, has nothing to do with how much money you have, has nothing to do with how many kids you have, or even if you're married. What Jesus says is, if you want to be great, you got to serve. You got to be willing to put other people before yourself. You got to be willing to put my purposes and my plan before your own plan. And when we think about humility and we think about God exalting us, it's a reminder that if we want to be exalted, if we want to be lifted up, we got to be willing to go low. Here's my points of application for today. We consider the passage. I want to encourage you this week. I want you to pray big. I want you to ask God for big things. I, let me just go ahead and just, I, I, like just, I like to just do this sometimes. So I, I, I'm praying for our church. I'm praying for all 40 acres of this property to be used. I'm praying for ministry to happen. I'm praying that one day we will have a Christian school here and an orphanage. I'm praying that one day we will have uh, houses for missionaries. I'm praying that we will have a community center to meet the needs of the community. I'm praying that we will be able to have uh, programs to help people to go from welfare to work. I'm praying for things that are going to give God honor and glory. Now, I recognize I may never see, I may never see the majority of those things. But I know God can do it. So I'm going to ask God big because I want to see the Lord glorify his name. So when you're asking this week, when you're asking um, specifically in your prayer time, make sure that the focus of your prayer is God and that God gets the glory. Secondly, we got to remember as a Christian, you can't play both sides. You can't be on both sides. The scripture tells us very clearly that friendship with this world is enmity with God. So I got to make a decision. Do I want peace with God or peace with the world? You can't have both. And lastly, we got to remember that God resists the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. I, I, I don't know about you, but I need grace. I need God's grace more so than anyone else here today. And if I'm going to receive that grace, i got to be willing to humble myself so God can give it to me. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this time. I ask that you would help us. Got to see exactly where we are fighting the hardest. God, I pray specifically, Lord God, for that internal battle. God, for my pleasures and my desires. God, I pray, God, that we would put to death 
selfish desires and selfish motives. God, I pray that we would not be a church that is warring with each other. God, but help us to be a church that is encouraging one another and praying for one another and serving one another. God, I know that's impossible if you don't do it. God, that's why I can ask you for it. God, I also pray specifically, Lord God, that you would help us to be known as a friend of God. Think about Abraham and Lot. Abraham was known as a friend of God. Lot was known as a friend of the world. God, help us to walk with you, God. Help us to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God, this week, God, I pray that you would allow us, God, to spend time pursuing you. And we would spend time investing in others, God. That we would help others, God, take steps of faith. God, we pray specifically that you would give us some divine appointments this week, that you would help us, God, to unite with some people, God, who are unsaved and unchurched, people who are not born again. God, not to fuss at them, not to condemn them, not to judge them, God, but to speak to them about the message of hope that is only found in Christ. God, as we spend a few moments worshiping, God, I pray that we would take moments, God, to meditate, that we would take moments to reflect. And God, I pray that we would even leave here with the thought, Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what am I going to do about it differently? God, help us to put action to the truth that you've given us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.